How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Today's podcast is sponsored by Demir's Ambulance, Braun Ambulances, and Crestline Coach. Three great brands, one great future. My guest today is Dr. Alex Isakoff. Dr. Isakoff is based out of Emory University, where he's a professor of emergency medicine and director of pre-hospital and disaster medicine. Doc, I'm not exactly sure how you found time to be with us today, but we certainly welcome you to EMS World Podcasts. Mike, thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. In today's episode, Dr. Isakoff and I are going to dive in to the pandemic's effect on EMS, specifically as it pertains to the disinfection practices now and moving forward past COVID. Doc, from your perspective as an EMS physician, how has the pandemic opened your eyes to the need for better safety measures when it comes to disinfection and decontamination in our workplace? Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's a great question. Um, you know, I think uh, EMS personnel day to day probably don't give, hadn't given a whole lot of thought about communicable diseases. Um, and uh, the pandemic has definitely opened our eyes about that. You know, the, the need to, uh, to recognize, you know, threats in our environment. You know, does this patient have COVID or don't they have COVID? Um, if I think they have COVID, you know, what, what procedures can I put in place? What PPE should I have on? Um, you know, how can I manage this patient in a way that I can take good care of them and also provide for my safety is now, you know, more important. Um, and then also, uh, how do I make that space safe then for the next patient and make it space, uh, the space safe for, you know, the next uh, paramedic or EMT that's in the back of the ambulance by, uh, by properly disinfecting the surface of that ambulance and, and making sure that there's been enough air exchange in the back of that ambulance uh, so that, you know, suspended aerosols or droplet nuclei um, are not there, you know, putting other providers at risk. I think the pandemics opened our eyes about the need to do this, certainly day to day through the pandemic. But I really expect that people's good habits that get developed through the course of managing this COVID-19 pandemic are going to carry on post-pandemic as well. I guess that's really the hope, right? Um, you know, I've spoken to many in the industry regarding how we had to ramp up as far as protecting ourselves and protecting our patients. And I think you make a great point about the next patient in the back of the ambulance. You know, I mean, let's be honest, there has always existed this gap in properly disinfecting our workspace, especially after a call. Certainly we have hand wiped uh, surfaces and, and things to that effect. But if you think about ICU space inside hospitals, that's always thoroughly disinfected before another patient enters. Is that same process occurring in ambulances or has it occurred prior to COVID-19? I would argue no. And so, you know, that's why I think now we, we've had the opportunity to witness the necessity of cleaning and disinfecting and making sure that we're wearing the appropriate PPE and, and the hope is that, like you say, this has opened our eyes to some of these protective measures we can utilize moving forward. 
Yeah, Mike, I think that's right. Uh, you know, I like to think of this in terms of a hierarchy of controls, right? Um, and uh, I mean, that, as sort of the you know bedrock for infection prevention. So part of it is how can you modulate your environment or change your environment to decrease exposure, right, to the healthcare team? Um, uh, and so we'll, we can talk about some of those things, but that's like separating the driver compartment, you know, from the patient compartment, making sure that your uh, circuit, your air circulation is, you know, is on high and are ideally drawing in fresh air, you know, ensuring that there's an exhaust fan that's turned on in that back of the ambulance or in the patient compartment to draw out some of these, you know, infectious, potentially infectious aerosols. So that's like, in, you know, cha changing your environment. Then there's the policies and procedures uh, that also, you know, are aimed at protecting the, the healthcare worker in the back of that ambulance. Um, you know, whether that's uh, um, the donning and doffing of the PPE, you know, the use of hand sanitizer, you know, some of these procedures that we've talked about already for modifying the environment, the proper cleaning and disinfection of the ambulance after a transport, and then ultimately the PPE that the, that the paramedic or EMT is wearing or the nurse, you know, whoever is in that uh, pre-hospital care environment. Um, this hierarchy of controls is like aimed at, you know, making things safe for the healthcare worker back there. And then, of course, you know, safe for the next patient that comes in that room. You know, Mike, you raised this question about, you know, well, what happens after an ICU patient, you know, moves out of the ICU before a new patient's put in there? That um, that ICU gets, you know, a, what's called a terminal cleaning, right? A, a final and terminal disinfection and cleaning. And uh, you started this question by saying you think that the likelihood that, you know, EMS is doing really robust terminal disinfection and cleaning between patients is is probably lacking. I you know I agree with you. That's I'm certain that's true in 911 operations, um, pre-COVID and you know perhaps during COVID too. Um, when we were dealing with concerns about viral hemorrhagic fever patients like Ebola virus disease, there were procedures in place to ensure that if you had an Ebola person under investigation or confirmed case, uh, that you had some terminal disinfection you know guidelines that you could implement by, by use of an EPA registered disinfectant and wearing the appropriate PPE when you wipe down that ambulance. There was also some technology that some agencies used to affect that terminal disinfection. But uh, you're right, Mike, day-to-day uh, -day, you know, EMS operations, whether that's inter-facility or 911, um, I, I, I don't have 100% confidence that, uh, that we're paying as much attention to that as, as we could or should, but that's part of what this pandemic's opening our eyes about. I agree. And and I've always made the analogy of, you know, what's going on back there. Sometimes you just don't want to know about it. It's very much like going into the, the kitchen of the diner or, or something like that. You know, you just don't want to see what's in there or uncover what's there. But I, I think that it's necessary now. And Demir's Braun and Crestline recently released a uh, a 16 page white paper on uh, best practices for ambulance decontamination. And and for the listeners, they can have access to that at dbcambulances.com for a free download. But I'll be honest, it's a really nice comprehensive piece on a lot of these different topics. And you know, there's really like five pillars there you need to look at with air quality and separation and, and things like that. And one of the things is, is surface decontamination. I, I think that's a, a big one as far as the back of the ambulance is concerned. Certainly we have air filtration, uh, HEPA filters that can be put in, but wiping down the ambulance isn't always just uh, as easy as accomplished as taking a, a disinfectant wipe and going across the surface and saying that you're fully disinfected. The truth of the matter is the fomite transmission 
is a big deal. And recently I read a study where they, they swabbed a, a, a certain number of ambulances that came back with 46% MRSA colonization all throughout the backs of these ambulances. It, it's disturbing to hear that. And I think that that's why some of these different types of applications are necessary. And, and Doc, maybe you could touch upon that type of surface uh, transmission uh, of these pathogens. Yeah, Mike, you know, I'd like to put it in, into full context. So, um, you know, in reference to the document uh, that you just turned the listeners to, um, I'm actually, you know, I'm looking at the table of contents and, and the author you know, did a good job raising, you know, some important considerations. Um, and uh, I'm going to put this, I think people are very interested in, you know, COVID transmission. So before we talk about, you know, surface disinfection, I, I just want to raise a few things. One, you know, the greatest risk of transmission of COVID from person to person um, is actually through those heavy droplets. You know, patients in front of you, you're just with them or you're doing a procedure. Um, if they have a chance to get, you know, the heavy droplets from their cough and sneeze into your eyes, nose and mouth, that's what's really going to put you at risk. That's the greatest, you know, risk. Um, and so getting a mask on that patient for source control, wearing the appropriate PPE as the healthcare, you know, provider in the back of that ambulance, that's key. The second thing is what's going on with the air, right? We know now we, we see experimental evidence that uh, these patients with COVID also through coughing, sneezing, even talking are generating some, um, in, some droplets in the air that float around. And if you're in close proximity to the patient and you're not wearing the appropriate respirator, you have the risk of you know, inhaling those and potentially getting infected. And so this issue around you know, air exchanges in the back of the ambulance and airflow, I think is important to help protect the healthcare personnel back there, as well as making sure that the air is clear before you know, the next patient gets put in. On your issue of fomites, Mike, I think um, you know, fomites, like you just you referenced the study on MRSA, and we always have to be cautious about fomites in our environment. For COVID-19, that person-to-person -person transmission through heavy droplets is probably the bigger deal. And then we have this question about, you know, these potentially infectious droplet nuclei floating around. Um, so caution about fomites is still important, but not as big of a deal of protecting ourselves from that, you know, drop, heavy droplet transmission person-to-person. -person. On the issue of decontaminating surfaces, the good news about the COVID virus or the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19 is not really that hardy a virus. You'll find studies about it, you know, its persistence in the environment. I think we have to look at those, you know, and 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 our procedures have to accommodate it. But um, but it's not a very hardy virus. So if you use an EPA registered disinfectant, you know, that has uh, uh, proven effectiveness against you know coronaviruses or SARS-CoV-2 in particular, um, should be pretty effective. Um, in fact, I would say you know is very effective. And the key really let's say between patients is to make sure that the high touch surfaces in the back of that ambulance, you know, the stretcher rails, the cabinet uh, um, uh, handles, the, the uh, all the surfaces in the ambulance, you know, are, can be adequately, let's say, wiped down, you know, with it, with a disinfectant wipe uh, so that those surfaces are disinfected and clean. Um, the document that you referenced actually makes good points about the types of surfaces in the back of an ambulance, um, you know, which I, that I agree with. You you want you want surfaces in the back of the ambulance where the patient is going to be to be impervious surfaces, meaning that um, you know they uh, they're they're impervious or they don't allow for penetration of liquid, meaning that any potentially infectious body fluid, whether it's you know a 
a sneeze droplet or something else just sits there and waits for you to then, you know, clean it, and wipe it with a disinfectant wipe. These impervious surfaces in the back of the ambulance are ideal. The fewer seams, the better, you know, nooks and crannies for things to get, you know, hidden in. That goes for the cabinets and drawers too. Um, uh, so I think all of that is, is important. Um, being able to disinfect, you know, these imperfect services with EPA-registered disinfectant wipes is good. But I also like the attention that was paid to ensuring that we're having adequate air exchange in the back of these ambulances to guard against, you know, suspended aerosols, um, as well as that physical separation of the driver compartment from the patient compartment to protect, you know, the driver in the front of the ambulance. Absolutely. I think they're all great points and, and could take any one of them and make certain guidelines from them. But transitioning a bit, Doc, you know, we speak about the, the providers as medics and EMTs. I'm curious as to what your thought process is behind the fear that exists now for the, the general public getting in the back of an ambulance. As the pandemic rages on, and as we saw the surge here in the Northeast in, in late spring, nobody wanted to go to the hospital. Nobody wanted to call 911 unless you were a COVID patient. Do you think that that's something that is going to stick with the general public now because of the fear of possibly contracting the virus from inside the back of the ambulance or within the hospital? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Mike. And and you you picked up on on some of the you know numbers, especially from the spring. It was very interesting. I mean, there was a major sort of decrease in the number of people that were accessing healthcare through the emergency department early in the pandemic. I think for the very reason you know that you mentioned, um, they didn't want to go somewhere where they thought they would be at greater risk for contracting um, COVID. Uh, I think you know. There, I mean, not not only that. I think there's. There's evidence that the CDC published that showed that, you know, the people that had good good reason to dial 911 and good reason to go to the emergency department, you know, for urgent or emergent care, didn't do so for fear of exposure to COVID. Um, you know, people that were having stroke symptoms or, or symptoms of a heart attack or something else. I think what we've seen now is the numbers in the emergency department and the EMS systems are, are they're back up. Um, nobody wants to be in the back of the ambulance, you know, unless you've been seriously injured or you're seriously ill. But I think the public has come around to the idea um, that, that, you know, you can get COVID uh, just through community interaction, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, driven by not wearing your a face covering and not managing that safe, you know, six foot distance or, um, you know, getting in places where you eat and drink together and your guard is down. And so I think people are more comfortable um, accessing 911 system, going to emergency departments when they feel they need to be evaluated. But I think there's an expectation and or one that's, you know, on target that if you're going to get in the back of an ambulance, that that space is going to be adequately cleaned and disinfected, um, you know, and so that you're protected back there from whatever the last patient had. I think that's people's expectations when they come to an emergency department, too, once you get into a room that it's been adequately, you know, cleaned and disinfected. And I think we need to meet the public's expectations around that. And, and there are ways to do that. Well, Doc, I think that recognition and acceptance drives change. And, and the hope here 
is that this has opened our eyes to the need to standardize some sort of method of disinfection and decontamination in the pre-hospital environment. And I implore people to look past COVID. We are going to get through this. You keep hearing it, but we will get there and we'll get back to some semblance of normalcy, but we need to change the way we do business on a daily basis. And I think that some of the things that we spoke about today and, and certainly the, the white paper done by uh, Demir's Braun and Crestline outlined some of these best practices. I want to thank again uh, Demir's Braun and Crestline for sponsoring this and for their piece, which can be accessed again uh, at dbcambulances.com. Doc, I also want to thank you for coming on, shedding some light on this from a physician's uh, perspective and what you've seen and what, what you've recognized and, and some of the, the thoughts that you have relative to this and moving forward. It's, it's really been a, a great pleasure to have you on, so I want to thank you. Mike, no, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity. I think you know, anything that we can do uh, to inform our um, you know, EMS uh, brethren or EMS colleagues about how to be safe uh, while they're, you know, doing their duty and uh, caring for patients in the community is an important thing to do and appreciate the opportunity to be part of it. Appreciate that, Doc. This has been another episode of EMS World Podcasts. And just a reminder, mark your calendars. First, EMS World Spring, ready to research virtually from March 3rd to March 5th. And of course, EMS World Expo coming to us in Atlanta, Georgia, October 4th to the 8th. We will see you in person there. This has been another episode of EMS World Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mike McCabe. See you next time. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.